Right, great to be with you tonight. It's fabulous to see so many young people here. I do realise it's not me and Ephesians, it's chips and possibly curry sauce, but hey, that's all right, I'll take what I can get. So I have to finish off the talks we've been doing over the last few weeks about the book of Ephesians. Now, if you've not been here, then uh, you won't uh, make an awful lot of, of, of the first bit, but don't worry, all I'm going to do to start with is just remind people of what we've said in the last few weeks, and you'll probably pick up a bit from that, because I'll be talking a bit about why Ephesians is such an important book, but uh, then it gets more interesting. Okay, so let's see, Ephesians, six chapters, fabulous book, and it divides into two, like lots of Paul's letters. I don't know what you like when you write a letter, but if I have to write just a chatty letter to somebody, I kind of think it out as I'm going along, and, you know, the weather is very nice today. Oh, last week I did this. Oh, I met so-and-so. And, you know, it just gets all jumbled together in a letter, which I don't write very often, to be honest, but once I do, that's the way I do it. In those days, it was a bit different. If you wrote a letter, the possibility was you weren't going to write it yourself. You'd have what was called an amanuensis, who was good at writing, and he'd write it while you dictated. And so you'd take time before you actually wrote the letter down or dictated it to the amanuensis, to think out exactly what you were going to say. It wasn't easy either, because, I mean, writing materials were expensive. And so if you started out with, dear, oh, no, that's all wrong. You couldn't tear it up and throw it in the bin. You had to go with what you got. So letters were pretty carefully thought out. Now, Ephesians is like that. And so you find it divides into two bits. The first three chapters is all about the teaching, the doctrine that Paul wants to give. And the second bit is about practice. It's about how you put that into practice. Lots of Paul's letters are like that. You start with a bit of teaching in the first part, we call it doctrine here. And in Ephesians, it's all about our place in the heavenlies. And this phrase, the heavenlies, is used again and again. And what he wants to say in Ephesians is, we are not just living here on earth, and what you see is what you get. We also are in heaven. It sounds a bit weird. But actually, if you're a Christian, you're in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, he says. You already have a home in heaven. You're already, as far as God is concerned, as good as there. You might have a few years to live through here first. We just don't know how long you get. But one of these days, you'll be in your proper place in heaven. And uh, so that means you have to live differently from people who don't have that heavenly reality in their lives. So you're still in this world, even while you're in heavenly places. You're a citizen of both places at once. I mean, I'm a Scotsman that lives in... No, let's not go down that road. But anyhow, um, that's the way it works. You can be in one place and still a citizen of another. And so the great word in the first part of the letter is the word sit. You are seated in heavenly places. You have got a right to be there. You know, if you're sitting in an aeroplane, you're about to fly off on holiday, and somebody else comes and says, can you push over? I want to sit here. No, I paid for this seat. This is my number, A15. I'm not moving. You know, it's your seat, it's your permanent position, it's where you deserve to be. In the second part, you've got two words, though. You've got walk, because walk talks about the way you go through the, through the world. If you've ever been down in the centre of Torquay or Painton or somewhere and just watched people, you know, waiting for a friend or something like that, the way they walk can tell you an awful lot about them. <laughs> I'm not looking at envy here, but uh, it's, it, the, the way you walk expresses who you are a little bit. And you have to walk in a certain way if you're a Christian. Not in the way you move your knees and limbs and stuff, but in, in the way you do things, the relationships you have with people, the stuff you choose to do rather than not to do, the way you spend your money, all that sort of stuff. So the big word in, for most of the second half of the letter is walk. And then it changes to stand. 
And that's just in the bit that we're dealing with tonight. And uh, we could say a more about this, but I won't bother you. This is the slide that we saw before. But tonight's bit, the blue bit, is the important bit. It talks about living in victory. Because you may be in heavenly places, but as you walk through this world, you have got an enemy who does not particularly like you if you're a Christian. In fact, he can't stand you. But he'll do whatever he can to do you down. And so you need to realize you're in a war. And you need to hold your ground. You don't want to be knocked over. You don't want to be defeated. Putin, Russia, when he came into uh, Ukraine, thought it was going to be a blitzkrieg. It was all going to be over in a very short space of time. And all the Ukrainians were going to be singing the Russian national anthem. <laughs> well, a few weeks later, it's not really happened, has it? Because they stood. And they've withstood the best that, that the Russians were able to throw at them. And Russian soldiers have given up. They've killed off their own commanders. They've run away. They've left their equipment simply because they weren't ready for the resistance that the Ukrainians showed. The word in this last bit is stand. And it's all about the armor that you have to wear if you are a Christian. Okay, I've said enough about that, so we'll forget these ones meantime. This is what uh, the Air Force Base in Honolulu of the United States Air Force looked like on January the 6th. 1941. Peaceful, calm. There was a war going on, Second World War, but America wasn't in it, and everything was dozing and sleeping in the sunshine. 7.48, the following morning, it all changed, and suddenly you get pictures like this, because the Japanese Air Force had attacked. Two waves of aircraft swept, swept over Pearl Harbor, Mid-submarines were released just outside the naval base. They sailed underwater and hauled ships underneath. Over 2,000 uh, American sailors died in that morning of attacks. There were eight battleships in Pearl Harbor. Four of them were sunk. The other four were uh, pretty badly damaged as well. Over 30 craft were almost destroyed. It was an incredible thing that nobody had expected to happen. Now, when that happened, there were three things that took place. First of all, there was a heavy cost to pay. Because the, the America had not realized they were in a war yet. The Japanese had decided to tell them, actually, they sent a message to America, which was supposed to arrive half an hour before the first bombs went off in Pearl Harbor. I mean, half an hour wouldn't have been a lot of use, but still, at least they were going to be told in advance. But they couldn't get the message through in time. And so it came out of a clear blue sky, and all of those people lost their lives. A heavy cost was paid simply because they weren't ready. They didn't realize they were in a war. Second thing was there was a wild panic. People didn't know what to do. They didn't know where it was coming from. They didn't know where to go. And the third thing that happened was a new resolve. Suddenly, America, who'd been saying, well, should we be in the war or shouldn't we? Is it a good idea? Is it not? Do we really support the British or would you, would you rather let Hitler beat them? Suddenly, America knew what was going on. They were up against Germany. They were up against Japan. They were up against the, the, the powers uh, that were allied together against the Western world. They had to be in this war. They had to take it seriously. And you know, if you don't realize as a Christian that you have got an enemy and that you are in a war, <laughs> then these three things are likely to happen to you. You'll pay a heavy cost because you're not ready for all of the things that you'll throw at you. Temptations, accusations, doubts. He'll help you see things the wrong way. He'll take away the enjoyment and the joy that you're supposed to have in living as a Christian. All of that will disappear just because you don't recognize who your enemy is. You'll be in a wild panic. He'll get you into situations where you don't even know if you're a Christian anymore. You don't know if the whole business is true. You're not sure what you think. 
because he's, he's good at mind games. And third, out of that will come a new resolve. But what will the resolve be? To do it better next time or just to give in? Well, the choice was there for America. So through this picture that Paul gives in Ephesians 6, 10 to 24, he's saying we are in a war. Let's read the verses anyway, shall we? Because we've not done that. So chapter 6 and verse 10. Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We don't have human enemies. But against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies, in the heavenly realms. He's saying it's not enemies, human ones we're up against. We're not fighting the atheists. We're not bashing the Muslims. We're not up against the Hindus. That's not who it is. Other people are to be loved. The real enemies we've got are in heavenly places. They're evil forces that will do stuff to our life that we really don't want them to do. And so he says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then. You see why this is the, the key word. He keeps on saying, stand, stand, stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word, word of God. And pray for a spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And the final bit in the letter is a little comment about the one guy whose name gets mentioned in the whole of the book of Ephesians. He's a man called Tychicus, and we may or may not get to him. I'll just see if people are falling asleep or throwing biscuits at me by that point. Okay, but we'll see how that one goes. And uh, if you're not throwing biscuits, then I might just um, talk about Tychicus. We'll see how we get that. So, what's Paul saying through this picture? One, be aware there's a battle going on. Two, stand your ground. We're not called to go forward and attack the evil forces and knock the devil over and do stuff like that. We're not called to take new kingdoms. We're not called to keep retreating either. But we're called to hold our ground. And the devil will try to dislodge us again and again. All we have to do is stand. That's what God's called us to. Number three, there's a thinking, planning mind behind the attacks that we face. Satan is not just a blind force, a sort of weird disease that's got abroad in the world somehow. Satan is a person. And he can think, work out how you think. And he can plan things that just suit you down to the ground in terms of destroying you and pulling you apart and unraveling your whole life. So remember that you're up against an enemy that's stronger than you are and it's only with your armor on that you're going to defeat him. And four is this, but if God has called us to fight this battle, we can do it, <laughs> and we can win. But to win, you need armour. This is uh, Harvard University playing McGill University from Montreal in 1884, one of the first American football games ever on this planet. Hmm. Now, I don't have a lot of time for American football, I must admit. It seems to me it goes on for hours, and you get sort of 
30 seconds of activity every few hours, and that's all you get kind of thing. But uh, I do realise it's a pretty brittle game. People get all sorts of injuries from it. And this is the way they used to get, you know, just in your normal daytime clothes. <laughs> and people started dying. <laughs> there was a game in 18... I shouldn't laugh. But there was a game in 1879, for instance, when five players got killed. And in 1905, they s started to bring in bits and pieces of armour that people had to wear in games. So that now, if you see American football, it looks a bit more like that, doesn't it? <laughs> and uh, it costs a fortune to buy a full set of gear. And it adds 20 to 30 pounds to the weight you've got carrying around with you. No wonder they can't do very much. They don't exactly look like, I don't know, uh, Mohammed Salah or anything, don't they? They couldn't move nearly that fast because you've got all this stuff to carry about with you. And when two of these titans conk into one another, oh, the earth shakes, doesn't it, really? But you need that stuff if you're going to play that game because without the armour, you're going to injure yourself. Now, Paul says in this passage, if you are going to stand against what the devil's trying to do to you, you have to be wearing armour. There is a Roman soldier putting on his armour. And Paul mentions six bits that you might put on. First of all, he says, oh, well, before we get there even, remember what he says about it. It's the armour of God. It's not your armour. You can't make yourself strong enough to face the devil just by saying, I'm going to think myself into real power here. I'm going to discipline my life. I'm going to make myself strong. I'm going to do exercises. And, you, know, you can't do that. You can't do it. It's God's armour. He supplies it. That's why Paul gives it names like the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. It's all things that God got you. That's what's the real armour, not something that you've got. Also, he talks about having the whole armour of God. One bit is not enough. You might have a lot of faith, but unless you've also got the righteousness bit and the gospel of peace and the rest of it in place, you're sunk. You don't want one thing. You want the whole of everything that God gives you. And when you want, you've got that total protection, you know that no side threat of the devil, no sneaky dart that he fires on the top of your head is going to get through because you're completely armoured, completely defended. You'll also notice in these six bits of armour, there is no protection for your back. None whatsoever. You've got a breastplate on the front, a helmet on your head, you've got shoes on your feet to help you run, but you are not supposed to run backwards. <laughs> You're not supposed to turn and run away because the idea is, the assumption is, you are going to keep on standing where you are. You're facing forward all the time. So there's no protection for your back and armour is useless forth unless you actually put it on. If you get into a battle, it's no good having your armour lying back in your tent might be nicely polished and ready for tomorrow and so on, but unless you're actually wearing it, you're stuffed. You really are. And that's why Roman soldiers used to keep their armour ready for use whenever they needed it. They used to help one another get into their armour because you can't do it on your own. And they used to practice how fast they could put their armour on because, you know, when the pagan Scots or somebody, you know, attack the over Hadrian's Wall, you don't want to be caught by one of them in the dark. And so you need to keep your armour handy so that you can put it on straight away. Okay, here is a Roman soldier with his full armour on. Let's see what those six bits are that Paul's talking about. First, he says the belt of truth has to be tucked, tucked around your waist. The belt is what holds everything else together. Then he talks about the breastplate of righteousness. That protects your upper half. Like oh, the, the belt also includes those little bits that hang down the front. It looks like a kilt from here, but no, it was the Scots that invented kilts, not the Roman. And those are actually little strips of leather or steel or whatever that protect the bottom half of your body. So the belt is quite important because it protects you down to your knees as well. The breastplate, though, is on your upper half up there. And then you've got the sandals, uh, which... Uh, 
talk about the readiness brought by the gospel of peace, according to Ephesians 6. And your sandals are important because you need to keep moving. If you're in a, a battle against a heathen tribe, you do not want to be wearing climbing boots. You really don't. You need to move quickly and nimbly about the place. If you've ever seen a boxer moving about the ring, watch his feet. And that kind of thing is a way a soldier needs to move in battle. Because when you're up against somebody else with a sword in his hand and you're up against him, your feet need to move fast. They don't... It's not like that. <laughs> you have to move all the time. And so those sandals have to be pretty good as well. Then he talks about the shield. And you'll see that Romans use pretty big shields. And the shield of faith is the next thing he talks about. That was important, not just for sword thrust coming at you, but uh, Paul says, if you've got the shield of faith, it will quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. In other words, one sneaky trick that your enemy might try is to fire darts at you, arrows that are on fire already. A bit like Ukrainian petrol bombs, Molotov cocktails, I guess. And if you've got a shield, then you can guard yourself against these darts. Then he talks about the helmet. And the helmet, he says, is salvation. Well, we'll see about that one in a moment. And then finally, there's one weapon, one offensive weapon that's mentioned, and it's the sword. The sword, he says, of the spirit. It's not even your sword, it's somebody else's. So we'll see those bits uh, one by one now. Let's start with the belt, because that's the first bit that gets put on. And that's what a Roman belt would have looked on. You see the little strips hanging down in front of uh, that bit of you, uh, just keeping it safe. And the kingulum militare, the, the, the belt, was what held everything else in place. And the Apostle Paul said, start with the belt of truth. It's truth. A little dance going on down here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, it held everything in place. Start with truth. And even your weapons stuck into the belt. You'd have a, a gladius, a sword on the one side, and a dagger on the other side. And those two weapons would be there, so you could grab them out very, very quickly. And there was a way of grabbing your, your uh, sword out of the side of your belt, a bit like a Western gunslinger. So you have your arm like that, and phew, and you've got it out faster than the enemy can think. And uh, people used to practice that as well. So the belt was what held everything in place, everything you needed for attack and everything you needed for defense. And what does that say? Well, it seems to me that what Paul's saying there is that truth needs to be the center of our whole operation if we live as a Christian. Everything we do is based on the truth. The truth that Jesus died and rose again. The truth that his life is now living through you. The truth that God values you and thinks you're a, an incredible person. The truth that his Holy Spirit has come to you and made you a different, different human being. All of that truth you need to remember. And it needs to be the bit that holds everything else in your life together. That truth needs to go into everything you do. And that way, you're defended. You won't get attacked. Well, you will get attacked, but you get beyond the attacks. And truth is desperately important. Now, the enemy will try to take the truth away from you. He'll try to make you feel as if you're not a Christian. You don't really belong. I mean, all of these people around you who are not Christians, how can they all be wrong and you just be right? And he'll try to tell you stuff like that. Or else he'll try to make you feel like, you know, God doesn't really love you. God doesn't care about you. In fact, God saw what you did last Wednesday and you didn't like it. Mm. And so God is just waiting to do something nasty to you because it's the kind of God he is. And he'll tell you all sorts of lies like that. Stick close to the truth because the truth has got to the center of the whole thing. Second thing, well, that's the breastplate, the loricora segmentata. And if you've ever seen a, a, a medieval breastplate like they had in the Middle Ages, like, for instance, in Compton, cast, cast over the hill there, a breastplate in the, in the Middle Ages was one solid piece of steel that went round your, your, your tummy. 
And that's because in the Middle Ages, they weren't very imaginative. Now, the Romans had a much better idea, and that's why it's a segmentata breastplate. It's in segments. It's in bits. And if you look at that breastplate there, it's made of lots of strips of metal that are sort of bound together so that they move, and you can move your body. You don't have one great sort of massive soup in front of you, which does restrict things a little bit. You've got a, a, a responsive kind of tunic, but it's made of steel and leather so that uh, it can withstand all the, the, the blows of the sword. But it's good for every situation, and it moves flexibly to protect the heart and all of the vital organs of your body. And Paul says the breastplate of, uh, where we're concerned is righteousness. Righteousness is something that God gives you when you become a Christian. When he forgives your sins and says, you are now right with me. Righteousness is what we live out day by day as we do things the way the Bible says we should. And we follow that sensor inside us that says, whoops, well, hang on a minute, you're out of your comfort zone. And gets us back to where we ought to be. And Paul says that's what needs to happen. And so righteousness when we apply it in every situation, flexibly, in everything that happens in our life, in our schoolwork, in our relationships with our friends, in the way that we're honest, in the way that we're kind, the way that we're thoughtful and compassionate, the more you do what is right in every situation and you express the righteousness of God in the things you do, the more you do that, your gut life is guarded from every danger. Then there's the third bit, and those are the caligae, the sandals. Now, the sandals were a very, very important part of standing. <laughs> well, obviously. I mean, you stand on your feet, don't you, really? So if you're going to stand, your feet are the most important bit. And there were two things that had to be true about the sandals. One thing was they had to be light, because, as I said, you had to move around. But second, they had to hold firm on ground that wasn't too good. If you're playing football, you often end up playing on a pitch that's a bit muddy and a bit churned up. And the way that you would uh, cope with that is, well, you don't wear dance shoes, do you? <laughs> you wear shoes that have got studs in them. And that's what the Roman soldiers used to do. When they were issued the sandals, they didn't have studs in the bottom. And what they would do is take nails and carve them up and then stick those nails in the bottom of the shoe. You can hardly see it. You can just about see it on the right. The, the bottom of the sandals there, it's got studs, nails, all through it, so that even on the roughest ground, you're able to stand firm. You don't want to be sliding over so that the, the pagan tribesman from Scotland says, too bad for you, Jimmy, you know, and just while you sprawl on the floor, sticks his sword into you. Uh, you're freezing for a bruising, son. Here's a Glasgow kiss to you. You, know, uh, you don't want that to happen. And so you want to stand absolutely firm. Now, what would Paul say about the sandals? He says that the sandals uh, are what sh uh, your feet are shod with, and your feet need to be shod with the preparation that comes from the gospel of peace. What does that mean? readiness that comes from the gospel of peace what he means is the gospel of peace the good news of peace with God through Jesus will make you both able to move flexibly from one situation to another and dodge your enemy also it will make you firmly planted on the ground you stand on and the more you realise God really has forgiven you that being justified by faith we have peace with God that's the way our passage started this morning the more you realise that's true then the more firm you will be. And when the devil tries to turn you over in the muddy ground, when the devil tries to get your feet planted so that you can't move, you'll be able to respond. Stay close to the gospel of peace. Remember how much God loves you. Remember how much he's forgiven you for. Remember that you have a relationship with him that the devil can never take away from you. And you'll be ready for any spiritual fight. You'll be able to stand. Then there's the fourth bit of it, and that's the scutum, the shield. It was a massive, massive shield. It was a, a meat high to start with. 
and uh, um, it was made of layers of plywood that were soaked in water to make them super <coughs> strong and they were blended together and covered in leather and just to make it uh, uh, super strong they'd put a piece of metal over the top, top and at the bottom to hold the whole thing together and one of those shields was incredibly difficult to get through. You've probably seen pictures of Roman tortoises, you know, when uh, Roman soldiers would, would gather into a group so they could move forward without being attacked. And uh, some of them would ho hold their shields on this side, and others over here would hold their shields on that side, and the people in the middle would hold their shields above them, so the whole thing was like a great big tortoise moving forward. You just couldn't beat a tortoise, you really couldn't, because it was like a shell all the way around it that you couldn't get through. And uh, that was the value of the shield. Now, what does Paul say about the shield? He says, take the shield of faith. What does faith mean? It means trusting God rather than yourself. And if you're prepared to trust God in situation after situation, then you'll find that your faith is strong enough and big enough to ward off all the attacks the devil can throw at you and put out those darts so that they don't come back. They're just smoking pecks on the shield that's killed them off. And you'll find again and again through your life, the devil will try to send thoughts into your brain which are not helpful, which are wrong, which distort the truth of God, make you feel bad about yourself, pull yourself apart. Or else they make you feel big about yourself and you get big-headed and conceited. And again and again, you need to hold on to faith and realize it's only through your relationship with God that you have this peace with God we've been talking about. It's only through him that you have the power to stand. And the more you claim the strength from God rather than from yourself, the more you can deal with all of those fiery darts. Then what else have we got? Well, the second last thing is the cassis, the helmet. And the helmet for a Roman soldier was a pretty elaborate piece of work. The plume on the top, uh, the, the, the fancy Mohican thing that they used to wear, that was actually only worn by legionaries and, and uh, centurions and people who were a bit important. And it had two purposes. First, to show that they were a bit important, and also, second, to scare the enemy. And you would be scared if you saw one of these waving, brightly colored things coming at you, because nobody else wore anything like that. So that's not the important bit. The important bit is what happens underneath. And the helmet was something like 1.3 kilos of iron, getting like American football, isn't it, really? And it was shaped in such a way that it protected your whole head. I mean, if you look at it there, for one thing, you've got that, uh, that, uh, that chin flap, the cheek flap that goes down either side so that you can't get at the person's face. It's just a little bit at the front. You've got the nose sticking out. Can't do much of that. But the sides are protected. At the back, you've got that thing like the back of the fireman's helmet, you know, that, that uh, goes off down the back. And that's not so that water can't go down your neck. That is so that nobody can get behind you and try and chop your head off through it because your neck is protected as well. And uh, in the places where you're more likely to be hit, there's special strengthening. For example, do you see that, that ridge just above the, the, the head, round there? That is so that nobody can take his sword and just go <coughs> right in the middle. It'll just bounce off. That is one of the weakest parts of your body. If you want to kill somebody, that's a good place to start. Why am I telling people how to kill? Never mind. But anyhow, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing what you learn at Great Parts Chapel, folks. Yep. But, you know, um, that piece of, of steel was put around there so that you couldn't do it. So the whole head was totally protected. And uh, Paul says, the helmet for a Christian is our salvation. The fact that you have been saved from your sins in the past. God has forgiven you and wiped your record clean. He's not going to come back. Now, I remember what you did five years ago. He's forgiven it. And in the present, you're being saved from the power of sin. As Jesus gives you the power to stand up against the devil and, uh, and beat him. 
And in the future, you will be saved, even from the very presence of sin, because you'll be in the presence of Jesus himself, where there are no tears, no suffering, nothing wrong. And you will see a whole new future that the world has never seen uh, in the past. So your salvation, salvation in the past, in the present, in the future, it all protects your head. Your head is the bit that you think with. And so keep your mind fixed on the fact that you have been saved. You are being saved, and you will be saved. Realize that. God has made a massive difference in you when you became a Christian. And that is the thing to build your identity on. The devil will try to send all sorts of thoughts in there that are unhelpful, that are wrong, that take you off in the wrong direction. He's got some great temptations he can throw at you. And he'll, he'll make you think that these temptations are designed perfectly for you, just handcrafted for you. You know how on websites nowadays, um, you, you often, you're looking at a, a, a page trying to buy something, and at the bottom of the says, we've picked these special offers out especially for you. And they've used their algorithms or whatever it is, you know, to find some other things they think, might think you want, might want to buy. And the devil sort of handcrafts these temptations for you. But 1 Corinthians 10 says this, there is no temptation that's come to you other than is common to human beings. It's not especially for you. Everybody goes through the same thing. And you might look at some people who've been Christians for about 75, 80 years and think, oh, they're so holy. You know, he was converted 350 years ago. He must be amazing. He mustn't get tempted any longer. Wrong. Happens to all of us. It really does. And what we need to realize is no temptation comes to us other than is common to human beings. But, says that verse, God will provide a way of escape from it. So we just need to look for the escape and it will be there. And that's, uh, that's the important thing to remember. You are protected. Your thinking doesn't need to be affected by temptations or worries or fears or doubts or depressions or, you know, uh, pride or arrogance or any of that sort of stuff. Because you have the helmet of salvation to protect it. Okay, we're nearly there. What's the last bit of uh, the armour? It's the defensive weapon, and it's the gladius. Now, Roman soldiers did have three different kinds of sword, okay? There was a massive, long, broad sword, which you would use on special occasions for chopping people's heads off and things like that. There was also a dagger, which was useful for all kinds of things. And one of the reasons for having a dagger was because they didn't eat with knives and forks. So if you wanted to eat a lump of cheese or cut off a lump of bread or whatever, you'd just use the dagger that was stuck in your belt there. So you had the very short one, you had the very long one, but the most useful one was this one. And this is the one that Paul is speaking about. It had two edges, two blades, one on either side. It was about 50 centimetres long, just over a foot, maybe less than that. They had different shapes and sizes, but the important thing was it was fast to draw. Remember, you had that technique for bringing it out like that. You could get it out pretty quick. It was good for stabbing people. It was two-edged. You could attack them from all sorts of different directions. You could use that blade, you could use that blade, and it would really do a quick, short stab. And Paul says, this is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. What does he mean by that? I think what he means is that the Holy Spirit uses the word of God, the Bible, to probe suddenly and deeply. Hebrews 4 talks about that. It says that uh, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged gladius. <laughs> And it penetrates right to the very inside of you. And so God's word, when you read it, will sometimes hurt. Because it shows you what you're really like. It brings you back to reality. It shows you what you are. And it penetrates you. But you know what? It also penetrates the forces that are trying to fight you. 
And with the word of God, you can answer all the temptations of the devil. Do you remember that story about Jesus? Just when he was starting his ministry, the devil was starting to get worried about him. Jesus went into the devil for 40 days and 40, uh, went into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. And the devil at the end of that time tempts him. And he throws at him at the end of the temptations, the three greatest temptations he can think about. We're not going to go into that story tonight. But do you notice how Jesus answers those temptations? Every single time he says, it is written, it is written, it is written. And the devil comes up with something really persuasive in Jesus. I can feel that one. You're wrong, devil, because I know the Bible says this. And the more you know of God's word, like Richard Britain, the more it becomes internal to your system, the more you can spot those temptations a mile off. And you can ah, that one is wrong, that one is wrong, that one is wrong. And you can deal with it. Just because the sword of the Spirit will penetrate your enemies and nail them, skewer them to the wall straight away. You don't do it, the Word does it. So, Paul says that's the armor that you need to put on. If you're being a Christian, realize you're in a war. Do the simple stuff. Read the Bible, pray, stay in close connection with your Heavenly Father. Live the way he wants you to. Go out into the world. Apply all of those things. Live in righteousness. And, and, and just live the, the fantastic, wonderful, colorful, creative lifestyle that he wants you to live. And in all those ways, the armor will protect you from what's going to happen. Well, he then says pray. And he tells them several ways in which they ought to pray. Now, I don't know how you pray. I don't know what your personal habits are. But here are some of the things he says to the Ephesians about the way they should be praying which I think are still true for us today. First of all, he says, pray in the Spirit. In other words, let the Holy Spirit fill your heart and your mind. You're not just praying about the things that are at the top of your mind, what God really wants you to pray about. The closer you stay to Jesus, the more your prayers will become the prayers he would pray, rather than just your prayers. I mean, many prayers are just selfish, aren't they? God, send us nice weather for tomorrow because I have to walk to school and I don't want to get wet. Lord, let's have a nice lunch and I, you know, whatever it happens to be. And, and most of our prayers are about ourselves or those really close to us. Praying in the Spirit means that God can prompt you to pray for things that you don't sometimes know why you're praying for them, but they're, 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 they're what's really necessary. Allow the Holy Spirit to help you to pray. Every time you, you, you get into a prayer time, say to God, look, Lord, I don't really know what I should be praying for, but you do. Send your spirit to help me pray. That's the first thing. Second, he says, pray on all occasions. <laughs> don't leave it just to sort of three minutes in the morning or five minutes at night or something like that or whatever you happen to do. You can pray anywhere. In fact, there's one verse in 1 Thessalonians 5 that says, pray without ceasing. You might think, but that'll get me into trouble. I mean, if I'm sitting in a maths class at school, you know, I've got my eyes shut, and she said, oh, you done exercise number five yet? You say, in a minute, I'm praying. He's going to get a little bit annoyed, isn't he? I don't think Paul does mean pray without stopping, because if you're walking along, oh, Lord, I pray to you this morning, you're going to walk into a lamppost and trip over dogs and all sorts of stuff, aren't you? So you don't want to do that. What he means is just always be in an attitude of prayer. You can move into prayer at any moment. So, you know, an ambulance goes past, Lord, I'll just pray for the person in that ambulance right now, give their family peace about it, whatever. So that when something happens that, uh, you know, one of your friends seems a bit off with you, you don't say, oh, don't like me anymore, go to take it to God. Lord, so-and-so seems to be acting in a funny way towards me this morning. Help me understand what's going on here. And help me, you know, any situation in your life, you can just move straight into prayer. You don't have to wait. So Paul says, pray on all occasions. He also says, pray creatively. Uh, what he actually says here is pray uh, on all occasions 
um, with all kinds of prayers and requests. Sometimes you can pray for a long time. Sometimes it's just a quick phrase. It can be when you're kneeling down with your eyes shut. It can be while you're walking along the road. You can go for a prayer walk and just say, hey, I just want to thank you, God, for all the things I see. I thank you for the trees. Oh, they're beautiful. They're wonderful this morning. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for uh, those people I see going to the supermarket. Thank you for supermarkets. I wouldn't get fed if it wasn't for the... You just thank God for everything as you walk along. You can pray in all kinds of different situations. Pray creatively. Third thing is, pray attentively. What does that mean? Well, he says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. And always keep praying for all the saints. Stay awake. Soldiers who know they've got an enemy are going to post watchmen, aren't they? They're going to post sentries. They're not going to sleep properly because one ear is going to be listening for stealthy uh, noises coming through the undergrowth. Stay awake. Be attentive. Understand what you need to pray for. Look at yourself and be honest with yourself. What does God need to give you more of? Where are you falling short? Look at the world out there. What situations need praying for? Ukraine, well, duh. Yeah, but there are lots of other places too. And think about those places. Find out what you can about them. Pray for people who are working in those places. Learn about some of the great things that are going on with Christians throughout the world. We were talking this morning about a, a girl who was kidnapped four years ago when she was 15 in Nigeria, along with over 100 other girls from her school. And she was taken away by Islamic militants into the jungle. Eventually, everybody was released and came back home, apart from this one girl, Leah Sharibo. Why? Because he said, well, if you will just say the, 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 the Muslim prayer of faith, which makes you a Muslim, you can go home. And she said, I'm not going to do that, because I'm a Christian. <coughs> and her friend said, come on, <coughs> Leah, just, just say it. You know, you can say afterwards, you know, I, they, into it, they told me to do it, and I, yeah, I didn't want to do it, but I just, she said, no, I can't do that. I'll be letting Jesus down. I'm a Christian. And so, to cut a long story short, for the last four years, that girl has been living in captivity. She's not been allowed to come home. Nigeria has been trying desperately to get her back. But because she's a Christian, she won't let her go. And she's been heroic in her faith over those four years. Now, how does she keep going? She keeps going because people all over the world are praying for her. And people in that kind of situation need our prayers. So Paul says, pray attentively. Know what's going on out there and use that to make your prayers exciting. The fifth thing, finally, is pray cooperatively. Pray for other people. Paul says, pray for me as well. Don't think, oh, he's the Apostle Paul. He's written half the Bible. Oh, he's all right. He's okay. He can manage. No, I need your prayers, he says. And all Christians around the world need your prayers. And people who are not Christians need your prayers. And don't pray just for the people you like who are warm and cuddly and, and nice to you. Pray for the people you don't like. Pray for the people you, you find you have a hard time with. Just and the more you do that, says Paul, the more the armor of God will protect you from the evil one and you'll be able not to return ever, but just to stand firm. Well, he goes on to talk, to talk about Tychicus and Tychicus, if you follow him through the Bible, is a brilliant example of how to live out all of those things he's been talking about. But that is a talk for another occasion. Let's sing our last hymn to Tim, shall we? And then we'll just pray. The last hymn is What a Friend We Have in Jesus, number 746, if you're